It has been on display since the time of our salvation, at least for us, Lord. But your love goes all the way back to the foundations of the world where the Bible tells us you knew us before then. You are truly a loving God. And we can come to you with our hurts, those things that weigh us down, Lord. You are a sympathetic high priest. You have suffered in all ways. You understand us. So, Lord, we ask that you would um, cause us to trust you. We have a tendency to try to live on our own. We have a tendency to live independent of you throughout the week. We find ourselves in places we shouldn't be. So, Lord, we want to learn to be dependent on you more, and we pray that even this passage would remind us of the great grace that our God has for us. He chases after us. He rescues us. So, Lord, cause us to love you deeply more today than even when we walked in. We thank you for all those who are here, so many in the building today, Lord. But we also thank you for those who couldn't come. Many have suffered loss. Some have passed away this week, Lord. We miss those dear saints. But we know they're with you, Lord. But for those that remain, those that couldn't be here today, we pray for them that you would strengthen them and comfort them. You are the God of all comfort, Lord. Thank you for those who even today will be calling on our shut-ins, worshiping with them. Give them strength and may they be a great encouragement to those. Lord, may we who can't go maybe today, may we remember them and pray and put them on our prayer list and remember those dear brothers and sisters who are no longer strong enough to come to church. Lord, we thank you for our missionaries around the world. I'm so encouraged by them. Conversations this week reminded me that these men and women are doing things that I am not called to do. They need our support. So Lord, bless them, give them favor, cause them to have great joy as they celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, draw people to you and different cultures and names. Make your name great among the nations, Lord. That's what you promised you would do. We ask that you would use our missionaries to do that. Help us, Lord, to make your name great here at home. Make it glorious. Help us to clearly articulate our Savior and all that he did for us. Lord, time is short. Life is short. Cause us to be ready to give an answer when called upon. Lord, now, may this passage help us to do that. I pray that we would see ourselves in maybe different characters throughout this parable, Lord. And may we worship you and understand you greater when we're done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last couple weeks, I took a little hiatus from 1 Corinthians. And we've been reminding ourselves of the change to change our thinking about God. And I only say that because we either have a tendency to think of God as stern and maybe judgmental, or in many cases, that pendulum has swung the other way where he is a loving God and he over, oh, uh, excuses all other sin and it's extremely out of balance and does not characterize him. Well, quite frankly, he is both. He is a holy and righteous judge and God And he displays his wrath against all ungodliness, the Bible tells us. But the Bible also teaches us God is love. He is the definition of love. He loves us, and he has proven that over and over. And so the Christian who studies his or her Bible sees both of these attributes clearly. 
you see him as righteous and holy. And you see him as loving and compassion, don't you? And that's what we're trying to remind ourselves, that these attributes are held in perfect harmony by our perfect God and Savior. Well, throughout our study in Luke 15, we've been reminded repeatedly that God is a God of joy. Sometimes we don't think of him that way. He's a God of joy. He's a God who rejoices. And he has caused us to rejoice. And he is reminding us in this passage that he and all of heaven rejoice at the recovery of the lost. The recovery of those who have fallen, those who are separated from him. He rejoices when they are returned. And not only him, but all of heaven as well. The reformers were clear when they said, and even though sometimes we read them and you wonder if they're joyful, but uh, these great men who articulated the faith so well, they tell us repeatedly that God's own end, his own goal is to bring joy to himself through the recovery of the loss. Just opposite of that is God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, two different places, and then two other places throughout the book tell us that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would repent and turn to him and live. That's God's goal. Because when they repent and return to him, he has great joy. And with him, all of heaven. So God clearly articulates what brings him pleasure, what brings him joy. Does that bring us pleasure? When we open this chapter, we looked at verses 1 and 2, and there we saw the setting, and there was tax collectors and sinners, and they were coming near him, and they were listening to him. This is the outcast. This is the unclean. This is the ones that the religious elite wanted no part of, and they are desiring to be close to Jesus. Jesus is bringing them into his presence, and they're listening. That's one group. Verse 2, we find the other group, these Pharisees and Sadducees, Scribes here, they, they were grumbling at this. They, they saw that these unclean, these wretched, these lowlifes were, were with Jesus and he was receiving them. The word receive is a great verb. It is not just like, oh, thanks. It is to take in and hold close. That's the idea there. He was receiving them and then he was eating with them. The religious elite were completely devoid of knowing what pleases God. And so they grumbled. Notice that. They did not know that God was full of joy when tax collectors and sinners are brought to him. And so they grumble. Jesus starts to illustrate this through two stories. Verses 3 through 6, he gives a parable of a shepherd who lost a sheep the parable is marked by four tremendous verbs. We looked at those the last couple of weeks in both these parables. There's lost. There's the one who goes after and seeks. There's the finding and there's the rejoicing. And really, we, we play a part in all of that in some way, right? We too were once lost, right? Our sins had separated us from God. We had no relationship with him. We were completely lost and hellbound, weren't we? So we understand that verb. And then there's the seeking, this going after. We know that God came after us. You know the time where he opened your heart and your mind to who he was, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know he came and got you, don't you? You experience that. 
that finding is an amazing thing. When you know that you are no longer condemned to hell. You're all your sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven. You know that, that sense of security and eternal security found in Christ now. That's your position. You've experienced those things. And you know rejoicing. You sense the presence of God rejoicing over you. And, and now we understand it when someone else gets saved, there is great joy. Uh, some of the greatest phone calls is when you hear of someone who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even in this first story, verse 7, he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so even in this glorious first story of a rejoicing of this lost, precious, valuable animal, God says, look, there's a bunch of you that are so self-righteous, you have no need of repentance. And because you have no need of repentance, you do not experience joy that I have. Remember, the setting is really clear. Here's Christ most likely probably standing with the tax collectors and sinners because they were coming near him. And since they were near him, the Pharisees would have been separated. They would have been away from Jesus and these sinners and it's obvious Christ was making a clear distinction between the two groups, and he is not going to stop. One group was dependent on the grace of God. Can you imagine this group? I, I think you're going to see this group a little more clearly, and you're going to see uh, as this group listens in on this last story how they would react during the story. But this group knew that to the world and to the Jews, they were outcasts, they were unclean. But they're the repentant ones. The other group is the self-righteous, the elites, those who believe that the kingdom owes them. In fact, the kingdom won't be the kingdom unless they're there. They're the ones that Jesus says they need no repentance. And that's not a vote of confidence. Christ finds no joy in those people. What's the key? The next little story he gives in 8 through 10 was a lost coin. Find the same verbs, the lost, those that go after them, the found, the rejoicing. It gets a little more detailed. As now it's a woman. This would have been very difficult for Pharisees and scribes to get their minds around this being a woman. But Jesus draws them into this. But we remember last week she hunts diligently for this lost coin. This is of great value. It's lost. It needs to be found. And she looks into the darkest cracks to find this lost valuable coin. The application, that there's great division between the sinners and the self-righteous. There's great division between the self-righteous and all what heaven rejoices in. Because in legalism, there is joylessness. They do not see the value. And they're more worried about what she's going to do with that coin when she finds it. Will, they, will she give it? And so the legalism is joyless. Death is at its doorstep, but repenting, those who repent have joy and they have life, and that, that's just seen in this parable again. And so obviously God is constantly drawing sinners to himself, and so we must evaluate through this text that God is constantly having a great experience of joy because over this world, throughout the billions of people that inhabit this world, God is constantly saving from every tribe, tongue, and people. And so he's full of joy. 
There's a party going on in heaven. There's joyfulness. And what's sad is when we study this is the self-righteous will never understand it and they will never see it. And Jesus is pointing that out because they need not to repent. Sadly, the self-righteous rejoice over a, a financial gain, something that was lost, but they will not rejoice over a sinner who has been recovered. But this is not our God. This is not our God at all. Our God loves to rejoice. He's in a continual state of joyfulness, and, and his plan of salvation is being executed perfectly by the Lord Jesus Christ. He finished it on the cross, and that salvation is spreading throughout the world, and so he finds himself in a constant rejoicing, constantly joyful. The scribes and Pharisees are just the opposite. They're grumblers, they're mumblers, they're sad, they're disturbed, and they have no joy in what God has joy in, and we have to examine that in our own lives. Am I a joyful person because of my salvation and others? Is there joy in my heart? Well, these two stories certainly illustrated those truths. But it is this last story. This is the pinnacle. This is what Jesus has been building up. Here he is going to drive home his point in a very powerful way. And in a very personal way. And so we come to the tale of two sons. We come to a lost son. First thought this morning, the ultimate sinner in the outrage of the legalist. In this story, Christ is going to build an understanding of what you might call, or I've labeled here, the ultimate sinner. And he's going to put that in front of us and ask us, what will we do with him? Self-righteous, it's a real problem with this. See, the self-righteous, everything was bound up in perception. What do people think about me? That's their main concern. What do people think about me? What are the naysayers saying? What, 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 do, what would bring me shame or dishonor? They're so consumed with that. They're consumed with how people perceive you, what your reputation is like, how they will honor you or dishonor you. And in the ancient world that Christ was ministering, they were consumed with this, particularly the religious elite. You must remove yourself from anything that would bring you dishonor. That was the, the state of mind. If something in some way or some person dishonored you, you would have to deal with that quickly. Because it would tarnish your perception. Your reaction to those who dishonored you was extremely important. It was to be a, show a, a force of strength against that person. You had to publicly reject them. That was paramount. And this was crucial within the religious elite. And so they distanced themselves to the very people who were standing with the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this is true because that's what happens in verses 1 and 2. These people were easy to distance from. These are prostitutes. These are Tax collectors, these are those who have abandoned their own countrymen and taken their money and given it to the pagans. Very easy for them to distance themselves from them, but yet it is those who are there to be near Jesus and to listen to him. I think what the Lord is going to do here is he's going to drag these uh, religious leaders right into this. He's going to 
bring them into this realm of dishonor and shame. And he's going to put them into a family setting where they have to deal with sin. They have to deal with forgiveness. They have to deal with repentance. They have to deal with reconciliation. And he's going to draw them right into an incredible story. The story most likely will push these religious leaders to the brink of hatred and to the gnashing of teeth. And this story is done. If they were not convinced already, they will be convinced Jesus has got to die. He cannot live. Verse 11 and 12, look with me there as we get into this tale of two sons, often labeled the prodigal son. He said, Jesus speaking now, a man had two sons. A younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he, the father, divided his wealth between them. Well, this would be unheard of. There's just no way a younger son would have any right to demand of the father an inheritance, particularly at this time. First off, inheritance were for when you were dead, right? And it gives you a little bit of insight in how far this young man is away from his family, how far in his thinking, how selfish he is in. And he is, in essence, saying, give me what I should get when you're dead because that's what our relationship is like. It's a terrible, shameful treatment of his father. This is the only time Jesus has addressed this issue when he was asking others to follow him. Some replied in Luke 9, 59 through 60. He asked them, are you going to follow me? And they said, yes, Lord, but first let me permit me to go and bury my father. Isn't that interesting? We'll follow you, but, but first we need to go bury my father. Well, why is that? Because in the Jewish culture, you didn't get the money until he was in the grave. And so there is a selfishness. And in Luke 9, these men would not follow Jesus because they were more concerned with money. And Jesus says, allow the dead to bury the dead. <laughs> That's quite a statement, isn't it? Let the spiritually dead deal with the dead things. You follow me. So this request from the son was extremely disrespectful. It dishonored the father at every level. And it would outrage the Pharisees. They would have looked at this young man and said, how dare he do that? There would only be one thing that would outrage them any more than what the son asked, is that the father caved into it. Notice in verse 12, it says, so he divided his wealth between them. And I study this, I, I thought, Lord, I'd love to see the faces of the religious leaders. <laughs> And then look at the faces of the tax collectors and the sinners who are coming close to the Lord Jesus Christ. There would be such a distinction sitting there. The audacity of this son to approach his father and shame him and disrespect him and ask for something that would only come at his death. Can you imagine the faces of those religious leaders at that point? But then pan over and look at the faces of the sinners. Hmm. Their relationships with their dads were probably broken. The choices they made in their life separated them. Their parents probably disowned them. And so here you have a very different group of people hearing the same message. The Pharisees and scribes would have taken that son and publicly beat him for that. The tax collectors and the sinners, they would have 
They would have understood the rejection of their own parents. Both groups are pulled into the story, and both groups are probably in very different corners. But it gets worse. Look at verse 13. And not many days later, the young son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Well, clearly there is no responsibility or stewardship to this money for the good of the family. It's quite possible this was generational money. This was money handed down through the family. This was to be cared for to make sure that this family had generational protection in a financial world. And now it's given to the son. This was a gargantuous waste of resources. It was tremendous disrespect to the family's name. And instead of properly investing for the financial health of the family, Jesus says that this young man takes everything and he goes into a distant country. Now somehow he had to liquidate this. And I began to think about this. They weren't so much a caste society as much as a barter. And they owned land and animals and so forth. And somehow the father got money to give him or he liquidated some of that. Can you imagine your son taking what you own and selling it to your neighbor who hates you? That might have happened. He takes his father's money, and notice what he does. In this very Jewish setting, he leaves and he goes to another country, the Bible says. He goes somewhere else, most likely the Gentile world, and he gives his father's estate to the Gentiles. If you don't think the Pharisees are mad yet, they are steaming. This is outrageous. They hate it, the other countries. We we know this because they wouldn't even pass through Samaria. When when Jesus goes through Samaria and and has a divine appointment with the woman at the well in John 4, that's that's outrageous to them that he would do that. To them, if they had to go through a pagan land, they would kick the dust off their feet when they walked across the border because they didn't want any association with the pagans, even the dust. So this is completely indignant. This is embarrassing behavior. And the Pharisees' anger grows greater. Clearly the son, he doesn't care about the father. He doesn't care about the rest of the family. He's consumed with self. This is what's caused him to disdain the family and act in such a disgraceful way. And he's just heaping shame on this family. But he doesn't care, does he? Give me what is mine. He wants no relationship with them. He's cutting off all relationship with his parents, with his family. His sin has grabbed him so much, his desires are so great, that he will tell his own father, I have no desire to have a relationship. Give me what's mine. Again, the outrage of the Pharisees would have been just through the roof in any other Jewish family. They knew the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord God will give you. He's not even staying in the land. At this point, the Pharisees would have thought the story would end right here. They would probably think, okay, here's what's going to happen this father is going to take this son and whoop him. Because that's what he deserves. That's what they 
That's what they're thinking. In their mind, there's no way the son would be receive one iota of this estate. But Jesus says, notice this, he divided his wealth between them. I mean, just mind-blowing to them. Why would you do this? Notice that Jesus explains how the father's estate was wasted here. And there, in this foreign land, he squandered his estate with loose living. You go, what does that mean? Well, drop down to verse 30, and the older son tells you what happened. When the son of yours, we'll get to this in a moment, who devoured, notice the choice of words, devoured your wealth. That's an eating term, right? You don't even chew it. Teenage boys, right? <laughs> Trying to feed them. He devoured it. And notice what he devoured it in. Look at this. With prostitutes. So when, when Jesus explains the story, how the father's state was a wasted away, it's through loose living, godless, pagan, immoral, right? The picture's clear here. The family inheritance was wasted on momentary, sinful, immoral pleasure, and it was gone. It gets worse. Father gives a full share to this younger son. Son doesn't rightfully belong to him. The way the son dishonors him, he separates himself. And the Pharisees' faces are probably beat red. And I imagine that Jesus told this story because he wants everyone to hear it then and now to be in the story. In some way. And when you read this, there's either two things that go through your heart. There either is outrage or there is brokenheartedness. One of the two. What if this was your son? What would you do? The Pharisees might have had him killed. But that's not how the story goes. See, in Jesus' day, the son would have never received these funds. He would have been stoned to death, most likely, or disassociated from the family. In fact, it was said when sons did this, they would have a fake funeral to say they are no longer alive. But now this young man is off in this foreign country. He is devouring the father's goods. But then circumstances change. They're finally out of his control. When he has money, he has what he can do, whatever he wants. We would imagine that all the friends and women and everybody would be around him. He is the best guy going until the money's gone and his circumstances change. Look at 14 and 15 with me. Now when he's spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the field to feed swine. Now those who were his friends are gone, right? He squandered away this estate of the father. 
friends and the relationships, all those are gone. We get the term prodigal here. It means to spend loosely, to uh, take resources and use them recklessly. It is the idea of extravagantly wasteful. Verse 14 says he spent everything. There was nothing left. He took all of his father's goods that it was given to him, and they're gone. That's why the Bible teaches us that the dangers of the love of money, isn't it? Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter, 6.10, said, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some of it, by longing for it, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Oh, boy, this is way beyond that. But that's what happens to Christians. We can desire money and find ourselves grieving. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, the Bible tells us. Well, this young man had lost everything. And now something completely out of his control happens. There's a famine, and he hits the bottom. Notice the word impoverished there. The word basically means to come in too late. In other words, you miss the boat. Everything's gone. It carries the idea of being completely depleted. Everything has given out. There is nothing left is the idea of the word. And that's where we find this young man in verse 15. Everything is gone. In fact, all he can do is hire himself out to go feed pigs. The verse says he hired himself out, but there doesn't seem to be any gain. Do you look at it? Look at this verse. There's no gain to it. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens, one of the pagans of that country, and he sent him into the field to feed swine. Verse 16, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that were the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. There's no gain for what he did. This is how foolish sin makes a person. Now he's in a foreign country. He's under pagan authority, and this is grinding on the Pharisees. And he's sent out with the unclean pigs. Just appalling. Verse 16, the only benefit we see is he can eat what the pigs eat, but even that's a problem. Notice he's there, and it says at the end of verse 16 that he says no one was giving him anything. He's going to die. He is alone with unclean animals, laying in the filth. He has nothing. He would put the pods in his stomach. He would gladly do it, it says, but that's teaching us something. This is, these are pods. They're a horn-shaped fruit that we get our word keratin from them. It's something that pigs could chew on. If you've ever had pigs, they could eat almost anything, but humans can't. And I think what's fascinating about this is he most likely tried. He would have gladly filled his stomach. He was down to eating what the pigs would, but his stomach wouldn't hold it. And so I think what this means is he was constantly throwing up, vomiting. You're broke. You're laying in the mud with the pigs, and you're throwing up. And you work for a pagan. So though it seems... He tries to fill his stomach, he can't. 
I think this is the, the definition of a sinner, isn't it? A sinner is one who rebels against God the Father. He rebels against his goodness and kindness. He rebels against the perfect word of God. The Bible says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. There's a rebellion against a God who loves his creation. And the result is you reject his character, you reject his authority, you reject his plan of salvation, you reject his grace and mercy, and you end up on your face in your own vomit. I think, I think what Jesus is doing, he's describing the ultimate sinner right in front of these Pharisees, right in front of the tax collectors and sinners, and one group is going, he gets what he deserves, and the other group's going, that's me. Do you see that? What a difference. Two different groups with two different desires for this son. One, good, he gets what he deserves. Two, going, that could be me. I've already broken my relationship with my parents. I've, always cho- I've already chosen prostitution or, or I've chosen tax collecting. I've chosen something and I'm now labeled a sinner and my parents won't have anything to do with me. I can't go to synagogue anymore so now I don't get the kingdom of God. That's me laying on the face in the mud. And if the story ended here, it would be horrible, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. Look at my second thought. The ultimate sinner, granite faith that leads to repentance. The ultimate sinner is granite faith that leads to repentance. Notice in verse 17, this is the beginning. I love this phrase. It's very well marked in my Bible. When he came to his senses. You know what I wrote? I wrote a flicker of faith. There's a flicker of faith there, isn't it? See, the gift of faith will point you to hope. And, and that faith will generate hope that will lead you to repentance. That's how God works. We don't repent, then we get faith. It's faith that brings us to repentance. See, so much of Christianity has flipped that around. They'll call people to repentance, and then once they do all this stuff, then they'll say they've come to faith. No, you came to faith. God showed you who you were, showed you your face down in the mud, dying in your sin, and that is what brings you to repentance. God shows you that and gives you awareness of that and understanding, and it leads you to a hope in Jesus Christ, and you repent. Praise God. And that's what's going on in here. And look, it may not be a perfect hope and perfect form of repentance, right, that we could draw out throughout the Bible, but it's sure filled with humility and realization when you read what this man says. He comes to his senses, and so he doesn't have a perfect understanding of what repentance looks like, but he knows where he's at is bad, and so he's going to turn back to his father, and in his mind he says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. Boy, that's truth. That's reality. The Father has more grace, and the wages of sin is death. That's what he's saying, isn't he? The Father has more than what you need. And if I stay here, I get what I deserve. Death. And you can see this flicker of faith and repentance. And see, that's the Spirit who leads us through the living truth, and instead of the flesh leading us to death, the Spirit leads us to life, right? 
The Spirit's leading this young man. He's, he's getting up out of this muck. And though his repentance is, is not perfectly charted out, he knows he's got to get back to the Father. See, repentance is a change of direction. It's motivated by the Spirit through the Word of God. It is a change of our thinking, our actions, our directions. And though it is somewhat misguided, even in some of the circumstances of this young man, the full blessing of repentance will be understood in the gracious standing of reconciliation. And it isn't until often that we come to God empty-handed, having nothing to come to him, stumbling our way in a sense. God reveals to us who we are as sons and daughters of the king. But all we know is we're going to die if we stay in our sin. It all starts with coming to your senses, listening to the truth of God's word, Understanding that God's desire is to grant forgiveness and bring restoration. There's a joyful return to the Father here. You can see this. He's willing to accept whatever consequences that come with this. This Look at verse 18. I will get up. There's the first step. That's the Spirit of God changing something. And I'll go to my Father. There's another step. And I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. I'll be a slave, and I'll be a happy slave. If I can just be back in the presence of the Father, I will be a happy slave. Well, maybe about this time, the Pharisees are probably going, well, finally something is right happening in this story. This kid's coming home, and he's going to get what he deserves. And maybe they would say something like this, you're right. You're going to be a slave. You will restore every bit of this family's fortune that you robbed us of, and you will be a slave, and you will work till all debt is paid. See, for them, repentance was works righteousness. For them is prove your repentance. It can be very different than what we see the Father do. See, this is the mark of the legalists. They were determined who is and who wasn't repentive. But Jesus' story shows that faith leads to repentance, and this repentance is starting to verbalize itself. Notice he starts to rehearse what he's going to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. The son is rehearsing repentance, isn't he? That's something new in this kid's life, right? He's gone from full-blown, self-absorbed to now I'm willing to be a slave and I'm, and I'm working on what I'm going to say to my father so I can, on my part, be right with him. And notice it says, I've sinned. See, he knows he must go to the father and so there's a clear view of God no matter how embarrassing, I'm going to go to God. I'm going to say, God, I knew it was right. You wrote it on my heart and yet I refuse to do what you say. Notice he said, I sinned against heaven in your sight. This is remnants of, of David's repentance in Psalms 51, 3 through 4, for I know my transgressions. This is David's writings, very similar to this young man. And my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sin- sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, the son is seeing the weight of his sin, isn't he? He's seeing the gravity of his sin. 
He's seeing the insult of the sin. And he reaches out in such a way into heaven. And he sees that God is omniscient. He sees that God is omnipresent. You know all things. You saw my sin. David says the same thing. And this has brought me to my knees, who you are. It is the holiness of God that often leads people to repentance. Just think if we would repent that way. God, I'm here to confess my sins to you. You were there when I did this. In fact, God, you watched me do it. I'm here to ask your forgiveness because it cost your son's death on the cross. And you did not give me immediately what I needed. Wages of sin is death, Lord. You could have struck me dead, but by your grace you didn't. And I am here to thank you and worship you that you forgave me of my sins. See, it's the character of God that often is used in our repentance. And so notice the rehearsal of his repentance, verse 19. He still doesn't understand the full reconciliation that's coming, and that's okay, but he just wants to be right with the Father. He just wants to be like a hired man, like a slave, just so he can be in the presence of the Father again. This is his desire. It's a clear demonstration of humility, repentance, driven by faith, hope in the goodness of the Father. That's what he's after. And as he rehearses this, it wasn't enough. Notice verse 20. The Bible says he got up and came to his father. See, the the beautiful result of faith-driven repentance is a change of direction no matter what the cost, right? No matter what the cost, there's a a change of direction. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to my father. And again, the Pharisees would have found some kind of vindication in this. But they would have never understood the fruit of repentance. They would have said, good, the boy owes us. He won't get anything till he pays every iota. Meanwhile, the tax collectors, they're, they're responding completely different. See, they've tasted the saving grace of God. They've been around Jesus. Zacchaeus is willing to give up everything to be right with God and man. Mary Magdalene, who suffered the demon possessions and probably whatever else came with that. They, she understands the grace of God. God could have let her go in that debauchery and she would have died a terrible death, but the Lord saved her. See, like the son, they knew that the father had more grace than they had sin. And they were seeking his kindness and forgiveness. And so two completely different responses. Well, third, we come to the loving Father's response to faith and repentance of the ultimate sinner. Most likely, the son would expect to be met with anger. He's coming home. He has stripped his father of his inheritance. This has doubtlessly damaged the family. So he's expecting anger. He's expecting punishment. He's expecting distance. He's expecting massive restitution that will have to be made, which could cost him his entire life of slavery. Maybe throughout a lifetime of regret and hard work, he could maybe get back some kind of good standing with his father, but he's willing to take that. Maybe he would anticipate the father reminding him that he was no longer his son, but just a slave, and he owes him a lifetime of indebtedness. Maybe he was prepared for his, for his father to come and kick him and beat him while he kissed his feet. Maybe that's what he was prepared to do. He was that far ready to be in the presence of the Lord. 
Maybe, maybe he knew he could lose his life. But repentance led him through humility, right? And he's, he's willing to accept whatever came. He, he doesn't care about the consequences. This is what you know when there's repentance. You don't care about the consequences. You just want to be right with the Father. Spirit is pushing you to reunion with the Father, your creator, your sustainer, the one who gave you life. You want to be right with him. Look at verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion for him. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. See, he he may have thought all these things were going to happen, the beatings, even possibly death, indebtedness, all those things, but that's not what happens when he meets the loving father. Notice that little phrase, still a long ways off. What a loaded statement that is. That means our father is anticipating us. This father was anticipating this son. This father's wooing and drawing him back. He's expecting him. He's been watching for him. He's not like the Pharisees. He's not like the the legalist who holds a a line and, and a heavy load over those who are trying to get to the Father. See, every human fears that there's no way back. They conjure up in their mind that God would be angry with me and be mad at me and I'll have to go through these things, but yet there's a desire to be right with the Father. And what is he met with? The Bible says he's felt compassion. He's met with compassion instead of what he deserves. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced meeting someone and asking their forgiveness and they never list it, they just embrace you? Have you ever done that to someone else? Someone who's hurt you. Someone who has done something awful to you. And God gives you the opportunity when they have been burdened by the Holy Spirit to come to you and ask your forgiveness. How do you respond to them? Can you forgive like this? The Bible says that we forgive because God in Christ forgave us that way. Do you have that desire to forgive this way? Sometimes relationships don't get reconciled because we are not ready to forgive the way God forgives. We're we're ready to forgive our way. Here's a list. Here's a mountain you can climb. And when you get to that, I will deem whether you are truly repentant or not. And then maybe, and then only maybe, we'll have a relationship. That's not the way God does. Notice how the father responds. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. The arrogant religious leaders are just must be blowing their minds. The father runs towards the sinner. When the father reaches the son, look what happens here in this text. His compassion is released on this unclean, pig-stinking son, and he embraces him and kisses him. 
Can you imagine just what he smelt like? Let alone in the Jewish custom of how unclean he is and cannot be in the presence of his father or anyone else for days on end. The Greek literally says this. He ran to him, fell upon his neck, and kissed him fervently and repeatedly. See, this gesture is beyond our human capacity at times, isn't it? This is a perfect father, right? Unless you've been forgiven of your sins. Because this is what Jesus did for you and me. We don't come to the cross and he said, okay, believe in me, but it's going to take you a lifetime to get me. We come empty-handed. And he embraces us. And this is a picture of a holy God embracing rotten, filthy sinners that are his sons and daughters. And the son's response as a result of faith that led him to repentance is beautiful. He, he this pig-stinking man who had his face down in, in just days earlier was going to die, is now in the arms of a loving father. He is prepared to tell him. He has not forgotten. His repentance has him ready to speak to his father. Verse 21, and the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned into heaven. What I've done has gone right into the presence of your throne room. That's repentance. I'm undeserving of your grace. I am, listen to this. He is saying, I am undeserving of your sonship. Through the years, I've had the blessing to watch men caught in pagan world get saved. And there are no more wretched sinners than I was. But they had a little longer to live it out. And I remember one particular cowboy said, Pastor, I know Jesus has saved me. And I want to come into the church, but I don't deserve to be in there. I'm hoping that God has a back door to heaven that I can just sit. I just want to sit inside the door. I don't need everything. I don't need the golden streets. I don't need any of that. I don't deserve it. I just hope I could get in the back door and sit there. You know what I told him? Okay, that's good. Absolutely not. The joy of rehearsing to him the position of a glorious son or daughter now has full sonship. Christ wipes out our past as though it does not exist. Notice, uh, this is astounding. There are no words from the Father at all to the Son. Why do you think that is? Because it's forgiven. In fact, there's no words, there's just actions. I know you want to be a slave, but that's not going to happen, son. There's no negotiations. There's no list. There's no works righteousness. There's no hills to climb. There's forgiveness, grace, restoration, and reconciliation. And look, if that isn't our God, I don't know what it is. The Bible says that 
God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. Listen to this. Not counting their trespasses against them. In fact, the only words that are spoken by the Father, we find them in verse 22, and they're told to the servants of how to treat the forgiven son. Look at verse 22. But the Father said to the slaves, not to the son, there's no words there, just embracing and loving and kissing, endless kisses on this neck of this lost son. He tells the servants, quickly bring out my best robe, put them on them, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring out the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. He dresses him in his own robe. Man, is that not Jesus? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may gain his righteousness. He dresses us in his own robes, and here's the Father doing it. He puts a ring on his finger to, to restore his rightful position within the family. He puts feet on his, shoes on his feet so that he can walk in his steps again. In fact, verse 23, he says, let's party. And all those four principles, lost, sought after, found, and rejoice, are re-highlighted again. And notice they celebrate. They begin to celebrate. The servants saw what pleased the Father, and they joined in. Do you? Do you join in when someone is repentant? And you find great joy in that. We handle those who have, who have been saved or have been off in sin. We handle them with the way God handles them. I think you could hear the cheers of the tax collectors and sinners at this point. They're thinking beating, death, servanthood, and now the son is completely restored. Can you imagine them longing for that own relationship with their own parents? And yet they're going to find it in Jesus and so there's this greater chasm between the repentant and those who don't need repentance. There's a greater chasm between those who are still amazed at grace and those who have no need of grace in their own self-righteousness. Finally, look at the last point. The self-righteous sinners responds to the loving father. Verses 25 and 26, we find the son who was only mentioned in the verse 11, that there was two of them, now enters the scene now this older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began to inquire the things, what things could be, what this could be. So the second son, the firstborn, is now brought into the story. He's identified. I think, I think what the Lord's doing is going, this is who you Pharisees are. You're the ones who need no repentance, so now I have one for you. We have a son who is repentant. We have a gracious father that has received him back and restored him fully. But you're missing, this group's missing. So the tax collectors and sinners have been brought into the scene from the son. Jesus Christ is brought in from the scene of the father. And now we have one more group that has to be brought in, and it is the older son relating with the Pharisees and scribes. This son is completely out of touch with the father. He has no relationship in it. They are merely roommates. He has no part of this great event where grace and mercy are being showered on this returning son. He does not understand restoration and reconciliation, and nor does he want any part of it. And I think this is key. The son finds his self-righteousness in his duty, but he has no delight even in the father. 
finds no delight in the father's humiliation. In fact, he would probably see what the father did and said, why would you do that for him? Verse 27, and he said to him, because he's struggling, he, he can't see, he can't see why he has joy. This servant, just the servant, not even the father yet, this is just the servant. Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And obviously his servant has embraced the father's compassion. He's embraced the grace and joy that has been deemed to this son. And, and, and he too, with the other servants, they're rejoicing of what was lost is now found. And they're extremely glad to participate in this glorious event. But not the older son. And I think here's where Christ turns up the heat on the comparison. Notice the response of verse 28, it's anger. But he became angry and was unwilling to go in. And his father, look what the father does again, came out and began pleading with him. Anger is what comes from him. See, this represents the Pharisees and scribes. They were probably boiling at this point anyway. They have no measure of grace. They think this boy has shamed and, they, and he deserves hell's fury. And yet the father embraces him and kisses him and returns him to son's status. And this son is the same way. And notice the father comes out and pleads for him to understand grace. Isn't that what he's doing? He's pleading with him. He's pleading with him. To understand grace, and yet there's a strong rejection of it. Jesus did this so often with the religious leaders. He showed them great miracles and wonders. He, he, he preached the gospel to them. He even pictured what substitutionary death and sacrificial death was in his own death, burial, and resurrection. He did all that. He was constantly pleading with those who were self-righteous. In verse 29, we see the older son reject the grace of his father. Look what he says in verse 29. This is amazing. But he answered and said to his father, Look. What a rebellious response. It, it is this, you don't understand. You have no idea what you're doing, father. You're wrong and I'm right. And he goes on, notice in this verse, he goes on to list this legalistic accomplishments and demands reward and accuses the, the father of lacking in grace and he condemns his younger brother of his sins again. Look at verse 30 with me. Or verse 29. For many years I have served you, and I have never neglected a commandment of yours. Sound like somebody else? Rich young ruler. I've done all these things for my youth. And yet you never have given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. You don't know what you're doing. I'm the one. I'm the good one. I'm here. I did all the right things. He's angry. 
He's angry because he did not get rewarded from his father, but there was nothing to rejoice over in his life. He was self-righteous. He was dutiful. He was graceless. He was like the religious zealots who do not desire to see people restored and reconciled. He is just like the Pharisees. And so he's consumed with his own good works. They have blinded him to understand what repentance is, and they've blinded him to the grace of God. And then look at verses 31 through 32. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for your brother of yours, he uses the word brother, was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. It's interesting, there in the English, we translate the word son, but it is tekton is the word meaning child. Weos is the word for son. He uses it all through the passage, but all of a sudden here, it's tekton and it's child. And so I think what he's saying, listen, immature one, child, the one who has grown distance from our, rel- our relationship, one who has hung on to your own desires, Verse 32, you just can't help that the Father here just reminds them, this is my goal. My goal is to give grace, see people respond to that grace, and celebrate that grace. Because it makes dead people alive, it makes lost people found, and it makes families complete. But you, you remain outside And nowhere in the text, and what's so interesting, the story just ends so abruptly. Remember, Jesus is standing there, sinners and tax collectors behind him, opposing them as these Pharisees and scribes, and all of a sudden the story just ends. And you notice there is no evidence of the son who ever enters in to celebrate and rejoice. And it's most likely Christ's way of saying that the Pharisees and scribes choose to continue to distance them from a joyous God. They don't want to rejoice in the things that God rejoices. And the legalists would rather hold on to their self-righteousness, their dutiful behavior, versus the celebrating with compassion and goodness to the mercy of God. And I think that's why he ends it that way. And you say, well, what happens in the story? Well, we don't know. And but here's what I think. I think Jesus is the end of the story. In fact, I think the end of the story is Jesus' arrest, his beatings and whippings, his mockings, and ultimately his death. I think he's the end of the story because this son never seems to come in. And now, now we find later as Jesus is arrested in the garden, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's delivered over, he's murdered by the hands of sinful men. They wag their fingers at him. They shake their heads at him. They, they, they mock him and say, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. Meaning you're the chief of sinners now. But here's Jesus hanging on a cross, saving a thief next to him despising the shame, counting it worthless in order to save another person as he's hanging on the cross, save this thief, not only us, all of us who believe. I think that's the end of the story. Because I think the Pharisees wanted him dead more than ever. And their religious desire to hold their position drove them to anger and hatred. 
And in the end, they never enter the home of God. They never experience the joy of God. What they experience is wailing and gnashing of teeth, and they will die in their sins, Jesus tells them in John 8. So let me just ask you some questions in closing. I know I'm gone a little bit late, but bear with me. Where were you in this story? Which one were you? I had to ask my question. I studied this all week. I thought, oh, Lord, I'm the son. I'm the one with my face down in the mud. I'm the unclean one. See, are you that lost one? Are you the one that but was sought after and found and rejoiced over? I pray that's all of us. Are, are you willing to say, God, I am the one, I'm the wretch, I'm the one that was in sin. I identify myself with that younger son. But I have experienced faith that you gave me, and it led to hope that brought me to repentance. And I, by your grace, turn back to you, Father, through Jesus Christ alone. And if you're the son, are you overwhelmed with the compassion that the father would run to you and show such an expression of loving kindness to you? Are you overwhelmed with that? Has grace grown old? Or is it still amazing? Or do you align yourself with the Pharisees and scribes? You don't need to repent. I'm a good person. I was raised in a good home. I've always paid my taxes. I'm not involved with Romans 1 type activities. In fact, I'm really bothered when people don't get what they deserve. See, where are you in the story? Are you standing with Jesus as a tax collector and sinner? Are you wanting to be near him because you know where he brought you from? Are you standing opposite? Are you opposing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray you will think through this and you'll be able to answer those questions before you leave this building because they are eternal questions. Father in heaven, this lesson teaches us at so many levels who God is. And it teaches us at many levels of who we are. We are self-consumed, dirty, filthy, unclean, wretched people who reject the Father. That's depravity. That's who we were, Lord. And I think why there's so much emotion in the building today is we, we know that's who we are. We know that's what we deserve. We, we should, we, if all things were right, Lord, we would have died in that pig pen. But you gave us faith. And that faith gave us hope. And that hope led to repentance. And by the grace of God, we got out of that filth. Before we could ever even imagine getting anywhere close to home, you ran out and kissed us. And embraced us through Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. And you restored to us all that was lost in humanity. You dressed us in your son's righteousness. You made us priest and royal of a royal priesthood, a holy ethnos, a people that was not a people, now have become the people of God. You, you've put us in your shoes. You've given us your inheritance. 
We marvel at that, God. We're overwhelmed at it. And we can't imagine, we can't imagine not being joyful that you save sinners. So Lord, as I finish this prayer and we sing, we see ourselves in many roles here. There's some of us that may have a loved one that's in that pig pen. Their face is down into the mire of this world and they are dying. They're in a foreign land. They're away from home. God, we plead with you that you would bring them to repentance. And Lord, you would cause us to to move when we see you move. We would run when you run. We would forgive like you forgive. We would embrace and kiss and celebrate and rejoice like you do when you bring one home. Lord, I ask that you would prepare our hearts for God who joyfully recovers the lost. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.